So there's just too much good Christmas stuff in the Bible to last just one week. So we're going to do Christmas part two today. I hope you don't mind because you're stuck with it. <laughs> last week we talked about Christmas as an origin story. I, I, I played a little game where I told you a story and then I told you it was about Superman. And we talked about origin stories and how origin stories set the stage for what's going to come. If, you, if you're familiar with the story of Superman, he comes as a baby and, and the, the, the backstory to why his father sends him to earth to be a guiding light and a savior sort of sets the stage for the kind of person he grows up to be. Well, we see a similar thing with the story of Jesus. The, the infancy narratives, the, the birth narratives that we find in Scripture set the stage. They, they preview, they foreshadow what Jesus is going to be like, what his ministry is going to accomplish, what the movement that follows in his name is going to do. So last week we sort of closed with this idea, the, the idea that the upside-down nature of Christmas, the upside-down nature of the Christmas story is a preview of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus would come to make known. So last week, we looked at Matthew's version of the birth narrative, of the infancy narrative. We saw how Luke portrayed Jesus as a challenge to the, the status quo of Caesar, how Caesar was portrayed by the world as a savior, as the one who brings good news of peace, as a Son of God, and how Matthew or how Luke's telling of the story sort of sets the stage for Jesus to sort of challenge the way of Caesar, how, they, how Luke presents Jesus as the true Savior, as the true bringer of peace, as the true good news for the world, and who does so in a backward sort of upside-down way, and how that sets the stage for the entire upside-down nature of Jesus' ministry. So today, we're going to look at Matthew's version of the story, Matthew's version of the story, the the birth and infancy narratives, if, if you're familiar with this, are found in the Gospel of Luke, which was written by Luke, and the Gospel of Matthew, which was written by... Man, you guys are smart. You're really catching on. I can go a little bit faster. So, so Matthew tells the story. He's writing to a slightly different audience, and he's going to tell us a different version of the story. As a matter of fact, Matthew's version is going to sort of pick up kind of where Luke's version of the story left off. A lot of times, uh, we'll talk about this in our Christmas narratives, in our, in our um, nativity scenes, we sort of take Matthew and Luke and sort of mix them together into one. But really, Matthew's version of the story picks up where Luke's version kind of left off. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there and follow along. We'll put the text up here on the screen as always. So here's how Matthew begins his story of the infancy narrative of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Matthew says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, after he was born uh, in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod. So Matthew is giving us some important information here. During the time of King Herod. How many of you spent the week reading up on King Herod? Okay, well, I did, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, okay? Here, king Herod was king of Judea at the time that Jesus was born. Uh, he was Idumean by birth. Idumea was a little bit south of the Judean region, but, but Herod was a very, very skilled politician. He was the son of a man named Antipater who was uh, in tight with the Romans, and so the Roman Senate appointed Herod to be king of Judea uh, in the years before Jesus was born. 
born. Herod was an excellent politician. He was able to appease Rome as well as appease the Jews who were living in Judea. And because of that, he was able to usher in sort of this unprecedented era of peace and prosperity in Judea. In Judea. He was able to to keep the peace in Judea, which was very important to, to the people in Rome, to Caesar and the Senate in Rome. He was also able to allow the Jews to freely worship. And in order to facilitate that, Herod actually took upon rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem, this magnificent structure. Herod was known as just an incredible master builder. Um, and he rebuilt the temple for the Jews to worship. So the Jews were happy. And because the Jews were happy and peaceful, Rome was happy. So Herod was sort of viewed as this great leader by the Romans and by some of the Jews of the establishment. Uh, He was also, though, a ruthless tyrant. Herod was a ruthless, ruthless tyrant. Um, You may not know this, but Herod actually had 10 wives, some of them simultaneously. Uh, He fathered 15 children, at least, um, and many of his wives and children uh, he had killed, right? So Herod was not not a, a good dude. Uh, he, w- he accomplished great things. He did great things. Um, in, in a way, he, he sort of brought greatness back to Judea, but he did so in some, some fairly ruthless ways, a lot of, of violence uh, in, his, in his life. He had some of his wives killed, some of his children killed, some of his brothers killed, um, all because he was very, very jealous. Anybody that he thought uh, might represent a threat to him and his rule, uh, he had summarily executed. Okay? Um, as a matter of fact, he, and he was so self-centered he was so self-centered, he knew that he wasn't very well-liked by a lot of people, and so he had some, uh, some well-liked elders, some well-liked leaders of the Jewish community imprisoned, and he gave orders that on the day that he died, that they should also be killed so that there would be mourning in the land on the day that he died, because he didn't think that people would mourn when he died. They thought they might celebrate. Um, what ended up happening, actually, is on the day he died, they released the elders that were kept prison, and everybody celebrated anyway. Um, but anyway, this is a little bit about Herod. He was, he was a ruthless dude, but he accomplished some, some from, the, from the world's perspective, some really great political um, things in terms of peace and prosperity in the land. So Matthew's giving us some clues here. Those of us who didn't grow up under Herod, don't know the stories, may not appreciate that as much as Matthew's original audience did. So the story goes on. Uh, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi, in some of your Bibles, this is translated as wise men. Now, when you hear, the, when you hear me mention Magi, when you hear me mention wise men, there's probably some images that come to your mind, maybe something kind of like this, right? Three camels traveling across the desert, right? Or maybe, maybe something a little bit more like this. Uh, you've got the, the typical nativity scene where you've got the three wise men who are bowing down to the baby Jesus who's still in the manger while the shepherds are there, right? Like I said, we sort of, we take Luke's version of the story with the manger and the shepherds and Matthew's version of the story with the wise men. We sort of cram them together in our nativity scenes in our front yards and in our churches. Uh, But as a matter of fact, it didn't actually happen quite like this as we're going to see. The Magi didn't show up until months or maybe a year or more after the birth of Jesus. So, uh, I'm not telling you need to take apart your nativity scenes, right, or, or anything like that. I'm just, you know, um, just keep in mind that there were probably more than three. It was probably a caravan of a lot of people. Uh, caravans, people tended to travel in caravans. Um, 
for safety. So there's probably more than three, and they didn't show up on the night Jesus was born. They showed up months, if not a year later. Um, that's all beside the point. The, the main thing I want to emphasize here is who were the Magi? Who were the Magi? It's the question I know you're all thinking about, so I'm going to answer the question for you. Magi were actually pagan priests and astrologers from the land of Persia and Babylon. Pagan priests and astrologers. What they did is they were a priestly class. They were learned. They were educated people. They studied. They had access. Babylon at one time was sort of the center of the ancient world. The Jews had lived there for a time, and so they had amassed some pretty good libraries. They had collections of ancient sacred texts. And so what they would do is they would study ancient sacred texts, and they would study the movements of the stars. And they would look to the stars and the movements of the heavenly bodies, and they would, they would make predictions about things that were going to happen based on these celestial movements. And so um, something, as we're going to see, this, this is who they were, these, these pagan, basically pagan priests and astrologers who studied ancient texts and the stars. And, and all of a sudden, they're showing up here in Jerusalem. But the main observation I want us to take away about the Magi is the Magi were religious outsiders. The Magi were religious outsiders. Typically, Jews did not have a high regard for people who studied astrology. Astrology was one of those things that in Scripture you're not, uh, you know, you're not supposed to really you know, make predictions about the future based on the movements of the stars. Now, there's a difference between astrology and astronomy, but, but the Magi were typically, for the most part, they represent religious outsiders. They're different than the high priests of uh, Jerusalem who are serving in the temple. So this is what I want you to remember about the Magi. They were religious outsiders. So here's what Matthew says. Magi from the east came to where? Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem. Now, if you are a religious outsider, if you, if you don't know Judaism in and out, if you don't know the depth of the Hebrew Scriptures, if you think something significant is going to happen for the Jewish people, you're probably going to go to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the religious center of the Jewish religion. Jerusalem is the, it's, it's where the temple was, it's where the high priests were, it's where the sacrifices happened. So if you think something significant is going to happen in the Jewish religion, you're probably going to show up to Jerusalem. This is the logical choice for them. So here's what happens when they show up. The, this, it, it's, like I said, it's probably a large caravan, right? So it's going to get people's attention. When you have this large caravan of religious outsiders, learned pagan scholars showing up in Jerusalem, it's going to get people's attention. And not only that, they show up and they start asking a question. And here's the question that they ask. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, based on what I told you about Herod, who was a ruthless, jealous tyrant, how upset do you think Herod might get if this group of outsiders shows up saying, where is the one who is born king? Right? All of a sudden, your reign is now being threatened, and this is going to be important. Uh, here's what they say. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So somehow, in some way, these pagan priests who are astrologers, they see something in the heavens that indicates to them that there is a new king that's going to be born 
in Judea who's going to be king of the Jews. Now, there are lots of explanations out there. There are lots of scholars who have studied this, who have, who have tracked the movements of celestial bodies, and there's lots of uh, hypotheses about what the star was or whether it was one star or a constellation uh, or, or, or several planets moving in conjunction. There's lots of really neat, interesting stuff out there. Uh, but all of that, I, I think, sort of misses, uh, misses the point. The, the best explanation, I think, that makes the most sense comes to us um, from my studies from a, a New Testament scholar by the name of Craig Here's what he says. He says, For one special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself where pagans were looking. For one special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself where pagans were looking. Right now, if I tell you that these origin stories are previews, They're, they foreshadow what's to come. And we see God revealing himself to religious outsiders, to those who are not within the traditional body of, of Jewish believers. So we see that God is, is expanding beyond this Jewish religion, that they, there was this insider mentality that we are the people of God and we're uniquely special. And we see, like we saw in Luke, God reveals himself to the shepherds who were in some way uh, on the margins of society, whether they were just poor and humble or whether they were, as some scholars say, they were outsiders or outcasts. God reveals himself to the shepherds in Luke and in Matthew, he reveals himself to the Magi, these religious outsiders. We see that God is expanding these horizons. He's getting people to, 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 to expand their mind, their thinking, to realize that maybe God is for more than just this group of people who thought that they were uniquely special, that God was doing something bigger and grander than he had done before. For one special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself, not where the Jewish leadership was looking, not where the king of the Jews was looking, not where Caesar was looking, but where pagan astrologers were looking. So the story continues. When King Herod heard this, he rejoiced. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, right? Because if you're king and there's born, Herod probably would have known if he would have had a son around that time, right, an heir to the throne. He knew that he, he didn't. And so he knows that if somebody else is born king, if you're king and somebody else is born king, usually there's only one king, right? So, so Herod, uh, he was a pretty smart guy. He was able to put two and two together and realize that if somebody else is born king, it means that he's probably not. So he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would all of Jerusalem be disturbed? Well, because Herod wasn't a very nice guy. Right? And so if there's somebody who's challenging the throne, Herod might make it very, very difficult on everybody there. There was this, there was this peace with Rome at this time, but it was, a, it was a tenuous peace, and it could always be upset very easily. So everybody was disturbed. So here's what happens. When Herod, when he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah 
was to be born. Now, if you're not familiar with this, the Messiah is the one who was promised to deliver the Jews. He was the promised king. They were waiting in expectation that God would send a king and a deliverer who would restore them to their former glory. And so Herod, being a fairly smart guy, not really Jewish himself, but understanding Jewish customs enough, knows that they're waiting for a Messiah. And so he gathers together all the, the, the religious leaders. He says, okay, where's the Messiah going to be born? And so they study the scriptures. They, they go to their, their scriptures and they come up with an answer, and they say, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says this, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so studying their ancient scriptures, the book of Micah, they realize that the Messiah, this leader, the shepherd, will be born in Bethlehem. And so they tell Herod, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So here's what Herod does. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, the exact time the star had appeared. Wanted to know how recently this had happened. After that, he sent them to Bethlehem. And said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as, you, as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, as readers of the story, as, as outsiders to the audience, we know that Herod is full of it, right? We know he doesn't actually want to go and worship this new king. We know he wants to know who's the threat to his throne because what does Herod do to those who are threats to his throne? Right? He dispatches them summarily. So here's what happens. Now, granted, this group of people has just shown up. They've said, we've seen the star. We know he's born. The, the religious leaders, they determine where he's going to be born. A, a Herod sends the Magi on their way. You would think at this point, you would think that the Jewish leaders, the high priests, all of the people who are waiting for Messiah with this announcement, you think they would all be running to Jerusalem, right, to celebrate the birth of their new king. You would think that the high priests and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody who's waiting for this deliverer, would, they'd all be flocking to Bethlehem to, to, to see this new king. But only one group goes to Bethlehem, and it was the Magi. Only the religious outsiders follow through on the announcements of this good news. There's something to be said about that. After they had heard the king, the Magi, they went on their way the only ones. And the star they had seen when it, rose ahead, uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Now, the, word, the Greek word used for child here indicates that the baby is a little bit older than uh, an infant now. So we think probably uh, a year older, if not a little bit older than that. Uh, so that it's not the same house that the, the baby was born. And they've been obviously apparently living in Bethlehem for a while. Joseph may have started up work there. They're, they're living in Bethlehem. And so the, the Magi show up uh, and they bow down and they worship him. This group of religious outsiders are the ones who show up and pay homage to this new king, not the religious insiders, not the ones who had been hoping and waiting and expecting, but the religious outsiders are the ones who recognize who he is and pay him homage. Then they opened their treasures and presented him 
with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is where we get three wise men, right? Three gifts. There must have been three wise men. We don't know how many there were, but we know they gave him three gifts, uh, gifts that were costly, gifts that were um, worth something, maybe used to, to help sustain the family, gifts that indicated royalty. Uh, so, they show up, they pay homage to Jesus, then something happens. It says, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Apparently, the, the Magi were, were um, what's the word I'm looking for? They were uh, naive, right? Maybe they, maybe they really believed that Herod really did want to show up, but so it took God showing up to them in a, in a vision, in a dream, saying, hey, you may not want to go back uh, this way. And so they depart another way and go home. Uh, when they had gone, Matthew continues, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. The Greek word translated escape here could also be translated flee. Flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Things just took a pretty dark turn in the story, didn't they? Herod didn't take this threat to his rule very kindly. And there, uh, this is perfectly in line with what we know about Herod from history. We know that he was a ruthless tyrant. Uh, killing a, a baby who threatens his rule is not outside of the, the realm of things that Herod actually did. So just as in Luke, just as Luke presented Jesus as a challenge to, to Caesar and Caesar's rule, we have Matthew presenting Jesus as a challenge to Herod and Herod's rule. The story continues in Matthew. It says, So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophets, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now we have a word for people who leave their homeland and escape to another country to flee political violence. Anybody know what that word is? Refugee. Refugee. Now, don't take this from me, right? I didn't make this up. Take it from the respected New Testament scholar Craig Keener. Here's what he says in his socio-rhetorical commentary on Matthew. He says, Matthew teaches that Jesus was a refugee. Jesus' miraculous escape should not lead us to overlook the nature of his deliverance. Jesus and his family survived. But they survived as what? Refugees. Now, it's hard to imagine a group of people more vulnerable than refugees. Refugees are usually homeless. They have to flee their home, usually in a hurry. They're usually very poor. They usually can't take much of their, their money or wealth if they have any with them. Uh, they're usually going to a foreign place to, to be with foreign people, maybe to speak a foreign language. Imagine having to leave your house in the middle of the night and flee to another country with only the clothes that you have on your back. To, to, to a country where you're, you're a, 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 an outsider, a foreigner, maybe you don't even speak the language. Imagine how discomforting, unnerving, scary that might be. It's hard to imagine a group of people more vulnerable and marginalized than refugees. This is the group that as a young child, Jesus identifies with. 
Now remember what I said about origin stories. Origin stories foreshadow, they preview what's to come. So here we have the Son of God, the King of Kings, born to these nobody parents in this out-of-the-way place already on the margins, an unmarried couple at first pregnant, already on the margins of society, and now they're finding themselves political refugees, fleeing political violence in their homeland. This is who Jesus identifies with as a young child. And it's going to foreshadow what's to come. So in light of this, with this background, I want to read to you something that Jesus is going to say later, something he's going to teach later as an adult. I want you to, I want you to listen to these words of Jesus with this background in mind. Here's what Jesus teaches later. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. That word stranger means foreigner. And you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you, Lord, sick or in prison and go to visit you? In other words, Jesus, Lord, King, We never saw you in any of these situations. Here's how the king replies. Jesus says, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, in the stories of Jesus' life, Jesus identifies with the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the foreigner, the child, the woman, those who have been mistreated and abused by society, those who are on the margins and on the outside. And here Jesus says that, that taking care of those people is just like taking care of him because he had been there himself as a child. This whole passage takes on a much deeper meaning when we understand that Jesus had literally experienced that as a child. So these past few weeks as I've been studying these infancy narratives, these birth narratives of Jesus, as I've been studying the Christmas story in Matthew and in Luke, it's become increasingly clear to me as I study these things in their historical context that Christmas is inescapably political. Christmas is inescapably political. It, it, once you understand the historical context that Jesus was born in, it's impossible to, to read Christmas without seeing these massive political ramifications. And there's lots of good, good work on this, lots of good commentaries and books that, that explain this. We've been over some of it. But, but it, you know, in, in the course of, of 2,000 years, we've, we've sort of familiarized and we've sanitized Christmas. 
We look at the manger and we talk about the, you know, we say things like wise men still seek him, which is cute and clever and true. Right, but we miss the deep political ramifications that, that the gospel writers are presenting Jesus as a challenge to all of the political structures of his day, presenting a new vision for political reality. And because Christmas is an origin story, because it previews what is to come, it tells us that not only is Christmas inescapably political, but Christianity is inescapably political. Christianity is inescapably political. In in too much of Christianity, Christianity has simply become about a ticket to heaven when we die, and it doesn't really influence our our daily lived life as as people who live in the polis, right? Christianity, if we take the teachings of Jesus seriously, is about the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? Right? When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it's more than just a prayer. It's an assignment. It's more than just a prayer. It's an assignment to to reflect and to work for this vision that, that Jesus preached and began. So what we need to remind ourselves as followers of Jesus still living on this side of eternity, if it's not good news, if it's not good for the poor, If it's not good for the marginalized, if it's not good for the foreigner, if it's not good for the refugee, if it's not good for the outsider, it's not Christian. This is the political vision that the gospel writers in Jesus give us over and over and over and over in the gospel stories. Now, I want to make a caveat here. Political does not mean partisan. There's a difference between being political and being partisan. Jesus is not a Democrat, and Jesus is not a Republican. And no earthly political party has claim to Jesus, right? No earthly political party represents Christian interests and values, despite what they may try to tell you to win your vote, Jesus, the politics of Jesus, politics means life in the city, life in the polis, which means city. The political vision of Jesus is going to challenge the political structures and status quo of our day. But make, make no mistake, Christianity is inescapably political. We cannot, we cannot be followers of Jesus and join whatever political party we want without reservation or consideration. Right, so this we could spend a whole, probably a whole year going over, you know, Christian political engagement. But but to, to remember that Christianity is political. How we side, Jesus sided with those who were on the outcast, on the margins. As followers, we must do the same. That is our politics. And so I want to close today with a poem. This poem is a variation on Howard Thurman's when the song of angels is stilled. It's a variation done by Michael Doherty. Here's what he writes. He says, when the carols have been stilled, when the star-chopped tree is taken down, when family and friends are gone home, when we are back to our schedules, the work of Christmas begins. The work of Christmas begins to welcome 
the refugee, to heal a broken planet, to feed the hungry, to build bridges of trust, not walls of fear, to share our gifts, to seek justice and peace for all people, to bring Christ's light to the world. The work of Christmas begins. The work that was previewed on Christmas Day, that was preached about by Jesus and demonstrated in His earthly ministry, that was entrusted to His closest followers, has been handed down to those of us who claim to follow Jesus today. Now, over 2,000 years ago, many of the, the, the striking political messages of Jesus' ministry have been sanitized and familiarized. And we, we have a version of Christianity today that has sort of been over-spiritualized and depoliticized, where we just we think that all we need to do is believe in Jesus now so we can go to heaven when we die, and what we do in between is just sort of nice but not really necessary. There's so much of Christianity that sort of takes Jesus' life and ministry and teachings and just sort of views it as like an optional prologue leading up to his death and resurrection and talking about heaven when we die, but that was not the message of Jesus. Beginning with Christmas and through his entire ministry, Jesus's, the the entire story, the entire narrative was one about setting the world right, and it was one about challenging the power structures of the day. As Mary sings in her song in Luke chapter 1, bringing down the mighty and lifting up the lowly. It's a vision of radical equality, of radical inclusion, of radical sharing. Christmas was inescapably political. Christianity is inescapably political. And the work of Christmas that began on that night continues today. It is our task. We have been entrusted by the the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God himself, to welcome the refugee, to heal a broken planet, to feed the hungry, to build bridges of trust, not walls of fear, to share our gifts, to seek justice and peace for all people, to bring Christ's light to the world. As we go forth, we do these things knowing that whatsoever we do or don't do to the least of those among us and around us, we do to Jesus himself. Lord, I thank you for these Christmas stories. I thank you for their scandalous nature when we understand them truly in their historical context. How you chose to send your son into the world as a savior, not to Rome, not to Jerusalem, but to Bethlehem, a small town on the outskirts of what's happening, to a couple of young parents, unmarried parents, how everything about the beginning of the kingdom of Christ was done in obscurity and scandal and challenged the power structures of the day. Lord, I thank you that, that you sent your son to identify with the most marginalized, the most outcast, because that means that your good news is for everybody. 
not just for those who have. It's not just for those who can. It's not just for those with power and status and ability, but Father, that you have given us good news for the entire world. Lord, I pray that you would make us faithful stewards of the mission that you have entrusted us with, that you would help us to see the world through your eyes, that you would help us to to not be tricked by the systems of power among us, that you would help us to see that you are most present in the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the imprisoned, the marginalized, the foreigner, and the refugee. Lord, may we reflect your radical love, your radical inclusion. May your upside-down kingdom, Father, if it needs to turn us upside down for a while, so that you can set us right side up. If we need to be disrupted, God, may you disrupt us because the Christmas story is disrupting. God, thank you for sending your son as a baby to be our Savior, not just sometime in the future, but the bringer of hope and peace and good news here and now. May we reflect that in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me lose myself and find it, Lord, in Thee. May all self be slain, my friends, the only Thee. 